Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Hi, beautiful, happy health day. Hello, Tracy. How are you today? Good, 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 good. It's really good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to catch up. I saw you last night. Long time ago. Last night was good. We went to a comedy show. We did. We went to a comedy show. A friend of mine's comedian. And he didn't know we were going, did he? We just wrapped up. That's definitely a way to introduce yourself as in, hey, I'm supporting you. I'm going to be in the third row. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. No, he hasn't really well. Yeah, I hope it's good. It's part of the Sydney Comedy Festival. I may as well plug it. Desolé, the French word, Desolé, at the Marrickville Factory Theatre. Go and see it, Jeeves and yeah. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. United Sands. So get your tickets in. Get your tickets in, yeah. Oh, actually, by the time this goes out, it'll be finished. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we can plug the name. You never know when a program will come up again. So that's true. That's yeah. true. And we've been spending so much time together. We had to see Jay Shetty, the one and only. Oh no! How exciting! I know. Well, for you, you were particularly. I was bubbling with excitement because, uh, yeah, in terms of social media, Jay Shetty is one of the reasons why. I log onto social media because I love his content. I love his backstory, being a monk and then transferring all this ancient wisdom into um, our modern world. Mm. So, um, yeah, and, and just seeing him live in person, in flesh, amazing. Amazing. And I mean, I've heard of Jay Shea because if you're a coach, if you're actually a coach, you can't not have heard of Jay Shetty. <laughs> and what I love about him is the ancient wisdom because I've been taught this ancient wisdom through some of my modalities as well. So what I find interesting is his interpretation and how he shares it with the public, you know, how you translate that. I love that. And obviously I'm with a science background. I just love being able to connect the two because I, and this is why I'm so passionate about what I do, because I, I really believe that we're all connected, right? And we all have this ancient wisdom. It's almost like we came here and we had amnesia when we came out, right? And I think life's about discovering it again and learning about yourself. And I feel like you know, you just know these things. And But then if somebody gives you the scientific explanation or if science catches up and can prove something, and then you're like, 
feel validated, but you already knew. Yeah. So that's the start of a very philosophical, um, a great conversation, open of air for sure. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's, it's the way that Jay Shetty um, and a lot of coaches bring science and philosophy together. Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah, he does it in a brilliant way. Yeah, mm. and I love his backstory as well. And we love him. He's a Brit. We love Brits. Yes, that's right. Yes. And he's British Indian too. So even better for me. Yeah. <laughs> British Indian. We like to celebrate our people of colour. That's right. Yeah. Our brothers and sisters. That's right. And talking about celebrating stories and highlighting stories. So uh, I'm going to kick off with the first story of the day. Um, this one actually came through on one of my uh, uh, job search pages um, because I'm a contractor. I'm currently uh, in between jobs. And uh, I went onto my LinkedIn platform and uh, there was an article which was um, written up by Melanie Sykes. Uh, she's a model and also a TV presenter in the UK. Mm, um, I remember uh, her. Yeah, many of our listeners will probably know of her from the Boddington. The beer ad oh, yes. You no, know, I think she was because one she's of the That's right. She's yeah. a Northerner. That's she's, a she's, she's known as being, I think she's Mancunian. but she Fellow Northerner. That's it. Yeah, I think it was the advert and it was her tagline was buy love. Yeah. Because, yeah, and so she was made famous I think back in the 1990s. And then off the back of that, she started her presentation and her TV career. And this particular article, which was featured in The Guardian this week, um, it did shock me. And so that's why I thought I'd share it. Um, it's The article talks about how Melanie Sykes has actually quit um, her career within the TV industry because of the way that she's been treated. So um, the headline from The Guardian is thrown under the bus Melanie Sykes says she quit TV after bad treatment by industry so um, the article goes on to say in a new book that follows her autism diagnosis the former presenter of the big breakfast describes a career marred by sexism and coercive behavior and the article uh, reads for years Melanie Sykes was a regular face on TV in shows such as today with Des and Mel the big breakfast and the great pottery throwdown but having been diagnosed autistic and endured a breakdown, the former model has revealed in her autobiography that she has quit mainstream TV and the horror story she encountered as a woman in the industry. The book charts Sykes' experience of sexism, abusive relationships and racism while providing an insight into the often toxic culture that she claims pervaded the fashion and showbiz industries during her career. Sykes said she would no longer be quote, tap dancing for corporations who couldn't give two hoots about my well-being. She told The Guardian that mainstream TV just doesn't interest me. I'm out of that game. She said she hoped her book and her two films she's making would shine a light on autism, especially as her son was diagnosed autistic as an infant and issues affecting vulnerable women, such as coercive control. Um, she quotes the saying, I want to help protect children and women and anyone who's vulnerable. I'm just a tool in order to facilitate it. So her book offers a fresh perspective on women from Greater Manchester who rose to fame in the 1990s as the face of Boddington's beer. So Melanie uh, Sykes goes on to say in her TV career, she struggled using the earpiece needed for producers to talk to her due to the heightened sensitivities from her undiagnosed autism and drowned to try to cope. She recounts tales of press intrusion and coercive and abusive boyfriends, including one who allegedly choked her. 
She alleges that she was often thrown under the bus by the TV industry, citing an example um, when she's on a game show with co-host Mark Wright and that filming was cancelled as it, as it fell foul of TV gambling rules. But in the press release issued about the show being cancelled, the line was that Mark and herself had failed to understand the concept of the game. So she said, I was fuming, thrown under bus yet again. This industry was a horror story. There was also another time when it was, she said she was persuaded to take part in a New Year's Eve special by an agent who said he would protect her. However, while she was filming, a colleague lay on the floor and stared up her skirt, which he thought was funny. I was horrified and screamed. He got up and I threw a drink all over him. It was all caught on camera. She said she was horrified to discover when the show aired that it had been edited in such a way that they did not use a footage of him, only footage of me losing it. I just looked crazy. So she goes on to say that uh, she was seriously fed up. She's published uh, her email exchanges with the ITM production team on her Instagram account, taking care to redact their names and email addresses. I'm just going to go to the most, I suppose, most highlighted bit relevant. So Melanie said, Women that ask for certain boundaries can be misconstrued as difficult. Many men ask for what they want, which is great, but we should just be allowed the same courtesy. It is our right to equality, but if you challenge their status quo, you are considered a problem. So, um, yeah, and she's gone on to say men do not talk to other men the way they speak to women because they would be in deep danger of getting punched on the nose if they did. Not all men, but quite a few, save a poor their anger and anxiety and unleash it on women. She said women are often not diagnosed autistic, as for too long, women who don't fit a notion of normal have been deemed mad or crazy. Yes. As soon as I hear those words come out of a man's mouth, I want to slap him, (laughs) to be honest, because you hardly ever hear people call a man crazy for his behaviour. Well, you know, I mean, whether he's officially diagnosed with a mental, even if you were diagnosed with a mental health issue, I don't think it's appropriate to call anyone crazy actually so without any diagnosis even you've got mental health issues it's totally inappropriate so and I just hear that so often especially Mm. men talking about exes that they're no longer with that's right if I was dating someone he started referring to his ex as crazy that'd be a big red red flag for me yeah like yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's um, for me with some this article that um that I read um, that Melanie Sykes actually went through all of this throughout her career it's really shocking and it's quite heartbreaking you know I used to work in the tv industry obviously not in front of a camera in production for some very high profile programs and it's sad for me to hear that somebody like Melanie Sykes went through this experience I was actually working on a show where she was co-presenting um, back in the day and when I read this it did make me feel really sad I remember you know when I was in my early 20s Melanie Sykes is only a few years older than me and I remember coming into work on a day she was there and, you know, she was a bit of a role model for me. I think she's actually half Indian. I was um, going to ask because I didn't know that. Hmm. She's obviously biracial, but I didn't realise she was. She's very pale, very light skin. So that's obviously that she was talking about racism there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it made me feel really sad because I remember, like, yeah, back in the day, like, Melanie Sykes was a role model for me. She's half Indian. She made it onto mainstream TV. And she's got model features, but she also transferred that very well into presenting. Um, which is a whole new talent. So I was really sad to hear that, that because of this abuse, because of the way she's been treated, because of these negative experiences, um, she's been forced to step away yeah. from career. So, so given that you've worked in the industry, was it a surprise to hear what she had to say? 
not especially, but I did think about, you know, why is this happening now? And like, I mean, I worked in the industry like 20 years ago and, uh, and there were probably experiences that happened. But again, I wasn't conscious to a bias at that time. And I think, you know, 20 years on, you know, it's sad to hear that the extreme of such behavior is still being tolerated. And I was thinking, okay, how is this industry different from many other industries? And I think with a lot of the other industries, especially on the corporate side, I'm talking about, you know, they have this structure whereby they've got a HR facility, they have a HR department, or they might have a governing body, which comes in and checks every year around regulations, around behavior. And, uh, but the TV industry doesn't have that. You know, I don't think, you know, Melanie Sykes, if she's in this experience, you know, she can't run to a department and submit her complaint or talk to somebody about what's happened. And this has been going on for years. And that's what isn't there in the TV and advertising industry. And there isn't necessarily HR departments or specific departments that look after this. And there's no specific governing body that I can think of that comes in and checks on a Mm. regular basis about practices in the workplace. So you really have no awareness of any inappropriate things that you might have gone along with at the time because down the road you thought that was just totally inappropriate you've not you don't recall anything like that not as not in an extreme example I'm sure there is but to be honest with you I think it was a while ago and one of the reasons I left the industry was because I saw I did see a lot of actions which didn't align to what the values were and what my values were so yeah so that's I think it was a little little scenarios which have been built up whereas mm. in Melanie's examples they're very extreme and there's numerous examples it's one yeah. other um, but the thing is these little examples that we don't you know that we kind of overlook or forget or ignore they contribute to the big extreme things they make those things acceptable they make people think they can get away with those things because of the culture of the little things that seem to go overlooked I don't think people realize that yeah all the little things yeah and I think it also it's about uh, the timing so you know one one of the reasons why I was saddened by this article was because um, you know I had hoped that the tv industry would have changed you know in the last 20 years um so but it doesn't look like it had well from Melanie's experience you know it's led her to step away from her career and have now take that opportunity to finally speak out so mm. and it's um it's just such a shame that melanie wasn't able and if, even if she did speak out she wasn't heard so she wasn't her yeah. you know, her experience hasn't been validated it wasn't validated and it's taken this extreme um call of action where she's had to step away from her career yeah. to be heard. i'm writing a book which is good and i mean cynics might say oh she's doing this just to promote a book but Really, if she just said any, if she'd have made too much of a fuss about it while she was still working there, she wouldn't be having a job anymore. Mm. Would she, she would still find work. So. Yeah, yeah. And I really like the, the, the fact that in this article, you know, she just highlighted that comparison around men versus women in terms of, you know, if there's obstacles or struggles which men go through, there's a lot more support around that and validation around that. Whereas with women, it's again, okay, what's wrong with her? Um, is she crazy? you know, so can she not do the job? So, you know, and again, it's sad that this is that this is still happening. So especially yeah. in the TV industry, because the TV industry is, you know, a major platform where the general public go for, you know, to gain advice, to learn about things. That's the platform that we go to. 
And the fact that this is the, the industry which is putting uh, information out there, you know, via this platform, is not doing what they say on a tin. Yeah, and also I don't really think necessarily that, you know, you said they don't have a governing body or a HR or that kind of thing to make sure those processes and regulations are followed. And, you know, I don't think that should matter so much because they're not isolated. They do live in the, you know, the real world and outside of TV, they have lives. So they should know what is and isn't acceptable in the workplace um, these days. So, yeah, it's a bit surprising. But, I mean, I don't know if it's the same generation of people with these behaviours or if it's newer generations continuing these types of behaviours. Who knows? I don't know. That's a good point. That is a good point. Let's just hope that, you know, obviously with the next generation coming through and leading the the TV industry on that platform, let's hope that, um, you know, we will see some change and we won't see other talented females like Melanie Sykes have to be in a position where they have to sacrifice their long, hard-working career just to be able to stand up for what they believe in. Yeah, sort of, yeah, feel valued and respected. Okay, that is very unfortunate and disappointing about the TV industry. The next story I have, and it's going back to the pandemic, and what happened was there was some research during that time about the switch, you know, because we had to switch to remote work, working from home. And you have couples both working full time, having to adapt to this remote work life. So they did some um, research and they're looking at how divisions of responsibilities, domestic responsibilities played out in that time. Now, the title of the article, it's called The Pandemic Deepened Gender Inequality in Dual Career Households. And this is from The Conversation. That's the source, The Conversation. Okay. And it says, uh, you know, the switch to remote work because of the COVID-19 pandemic required dual career couples to adapt to a new way of life. Mm -hmm. And as work and domestic responsibilities blurred, couples attempted to balance work and family life at home. And it's specifically talking about heterosexual couples saying that this return to home life did not reflect the pre-pandemic routine, but one that resembled a scene from the 1950s. Researchers examined these new relationship dynamics and found that although both men and women were actively employed, women took on the greatest number of domestic responsibilities during the pandemic. Working mothers reduced their working hours or left their careers to take on the role of homemaker while their male partners continued to work. And this phenomenon where women take on a greater share of domestic responsibilities due to gender stereotypes is known as the gender division of labour. So the question remains how and why the majority of domestic labour continues to fall on women and what factors may be contributing to this type of gender inequality. And it goes on to talk about the social roles assigned to men and women in, you know, culturally uh, at home at work. So, uh, you know, gender stereotypes. So, you know, like women seen as homemakers and caretakers and men are considered providers mm-hmm. best suited for employment. So that's, you know, this, the gender stereotype. Yeah. And I, I get annoyed. Like, I have some girlfriends that, you know, have careers and they have children and husbands and they would probably choose, some of them would choose to be, take that position. I don't know if it's because it's programmed, it's a part of programming or if it's 
they would have chose that anyway. Who knows, right? And some of the women I know would rather share that activity. And also I feel like some men miss out on the bonding with their children at a young age because of that stereotype mm-hmm. that, you know, they're not supposed to be the caregiver. They're not supposed to be spending equal amount of time looking after their children. And I feel that's a disservice to the men as well, that they miss out on that quality bonding time in those formative years. So I think these gender stereotypes can be quite harmful. But I think to be careful about recognising that some women do prefer to be the caretaker or whatever, you know, got to recognise that. However, this research is pointing out that there was a massive, you know, majority of women taking on that whilst working. That's an interesting one because uh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Um, and it's an interesting statistic or piece of research. I mean, it's going back to a time when homes then became um, schools or the kitchen table became the mm. classroom mm. and mums and dads um, became teachers. Yeah. And I think after the pandemic, I think there was a serious increase in appreciation of the school teacher. Yeah. I heard from a lot of parents that I know. And yeah. it's interesting that um, this research being shared, Tracy, because, I mean, I know the, the parents that I know, but this is mainly in England. Uh, it was actually um, the male parent who ended up taking on the schoolwork as well as their own work. And there was a lot of complaints by my <laughs> friends in England who were in partnerships um, and in heterosexual marriages, whereby uh, it was actually the, the um, male parent who took on the teaching mm. responsibilities. So, but I think also it's a case of kind of sometimes it's a case of figuring out in terms of finances. You know, mm. there may be if we um, if the woman is earning more, and let's say yeah, if the woman is earning more, then it kind of makes sense that you know there's more um, ownership of the schoolwork on the male parent, or it could come down to job security. So, for example, even if the um, woman is earning a, a little bit more than, than the male, but if the male is, you know, there's a risk of job uh, insecurity and the male needs to put in the hours in order to retain the job, then obviously those conversations are between or would happen within that family environment around what decision is made. But factors like that, such as job insecurity, how much you're getting paid, who is the high earning uh, parent, and also, um, you know, what's right for the kids. Well, yeah, but I mean, job security potentially affects both partners and generally. I mean, it would but, be a particularly unique situation. Yeah, where... but for example, in COVID, I know that there was during the COVID lockdown, there may be situations whereby the nature of the occupation means that the job insecurity... Oh, you mean like the job... Was... ...goes up, yeah. yeah. yeah so exactly. because of lockdown, let's say, for example, the male uh, breadwinner is you know there's always been job security suddenly lockdown happens and they may for whatever nature of a job they may not necessarily need to keep everyone in the department and that puts pressure on that male and so you know one of the ideas is you know your productivity is being reviewed and but then I don't see that being gender specific because you know the sectors that were affected like the travel tourism industry hospitality don't tend to be gender specific to having mostly males and females. I don't see that being a gender thing. So. It's a factor in mm. terms of between the male and female a partnership, as in, you know, it's sure. impact. Like, I suppose I'm talking about the factors which impact this sure. scenario and how and why this could have come about. Yeah, but, but such a discrepancy 
I think those factors affect both genders, so it still doesn't explain the massive discrepancy. But what is interesting as well is that it says, you know, gender equality in the workplace at home has greatly improved over the last several decades. And it's specifically in younger couples who reported having more equitable relationship dynamics. So you have, you see men taking a more equal share of household work. And also the couples will have different expectations of gender roles with partners making household decisions based on factors beyond gender, which is how I would like to have a relationship. Hmm. You know, I might be with a partner that loves vacuuming, you know, it would be perfect if you meet someone who loves doing the things you don't like doing vice versa yeah yeah that would be good yeah but yeah that's like a perfect like yin and yang isn't it yeah it is so, um, but i would be really annoyed to be expected to like to do things or want to do things because of my gender because i just, I just don't think that's fair but anyway at the beginning of the pandemic it was predicted that the shift to remote work would lead to more equal division of domestic labor however this research um, publication found the progress was set back by po- the pandemic. In particular, they found gender division of labour among dual career couples worsened. Wow. Well, I think that the people that I know of probably lay in that minority because I, I heard of experiences which were on the other extreme, whereby it was actually my male counterpart friends who were basically saying about, oh, I've got, I'm doing all the schooling and I'm doing my job, what's going on? So it actually, the tables were completely flipped. Mm. So yeah, maybe the, the people I do were probably made of that minority of um, that research. Maybe. And you were talking about circumstances around these decisions, right? So they looked at some of the reasons. Okay. So the findings, yeah, worsening division of labour among dual career heterosexual couples working remotely was influenced by the age and the existence of children. So research found that couples 50 years of age and over had more traditional division of labor. I would probably expect that. Despite being fully employed, women in these partnerships took on most, if not all, of the household tasks and caregiving responsibilities. One woman over 50 told us, so I'm cooking and cleaning, I do all the grocery shopping, I do all the out stuff, he, has never been interested in cooking and chores, not knowing where simple things are, like where the rolling pin is kept, because he's never used it in the kitchen. So it's very much a division. Well, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Where the rolling pin is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you know where the rolling pin is, you're, that's it. That's the most important factor. That's here. the most important thing. Yeah. I don't even know, do I own a rolling pin? Do you know what? I don't think I even own a rolling pin. I think I use a bottle of wine the once a year I actually bake. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, great use of an empty bottle of wine. Well, it's probably not empty, but yeah. Or a couple's under 50 participate in a more equal division of labour with women and men sharing domestic tasks. Yes. Uh, however, when these couples had young children, women often took on majority of household and caregiving responsibilities. And then it says, for couples who did not have children, despite a more equal division of labour, women were responsible for more feminine-orientated tasks, like cooking and cleaning, while their male partners participated in more male-oriented tasks, take out the garbage and yard work. I say the traditional male and female roles. Yes. Still, uh, they didn't transcend the COVID lockdown. No. And one woman under 50, so this is the under 50. I'm Martha Stewart. I'm making dinner. In terms of division of labour, it's stereotypical. He 
We'll do the stuff outside the house. So lawn mowing, shoveling, and I would do stuff inside the house. So there you go. That's um, the younger generation. Wow, it's very step for wives, isn't it? It is. And overall, domestic labour defaulted to women. You took on more home and family responsibilities, more feminine orientated tasks, and felt a greater emotional burden towards this division of labour. And then I just got to talk about women's feelings. I'm just going to read what the women said because it's quite fun. Okay. Women's feelings about domestic labour. So one woman over 50 told us, I don't like it and I'm not pleased with it because it's a battle and I haven't got the strength for a fight. I mean, you will have to keep going anyways, anyhow. <laughs> oh, she just sounds tired, doesn't she? She does. She just sounds she's, tired. She sounds like she's got to the end of her tether. I know. I know. She's like, she's like the battle. It's like, I can't go on anymore. She's like flying that white flag. Isn't <laughs> she's like, I have no bloody choice. And then you've got women under 50 who experienced a more equal division of labour expressed mixed feelings of guilt, gratitude, and anxiety. Many women felt fortunate to have partners who shared the workload in the household, but others felt guilty. I would probably, I would feel grateful. I would feel grateful to share the workload with anyone, a housemate, a partner. Mm. What did she say? Women under 50 said. I have to say, I suppose it also depends on your own style because I have to, um, confession time here. Uh, I'm quite particular when it comes to tidying up. Right, where things are put, and right. so don't get me wrong. You know, if I had a partner and they would do the, you know, the cleaning and the dusting and so forth, that's great. I totally appreciate that. However, I think there'd be a part of me that would be kind of like the inspector side of things, thinking, "Oh, did you do that right? You know, is that in its right place? Why is he put it there? You know." And so I'd actually probably change it all and do it all again. Oh so, well, um, there is I that. There's that. Mm. Well, then you'd have to do it, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, and like you say, you know, some people take you know pleasure and uh, out of certain household chores. Yeah, exactly. Some people don't find them chores. But, you know, I think you should call them chores because I just think it adds a, an idea that it's hard work. That's right. Um, yeah, I know lots of people who find uh, ironing um, a great um, meditative tool. Exactly. So it's just so, whatever um, you like, and it's not gender specific. Because I know all the men that like cleaning. I think oh, it's my dream man, the man that likes cleaning. Um, what was this lady under 50 said that she feels intense guilt and stress and anxiety because I'm not able to participate in the kinds of food preparation that I was able to do before, which I don't really understand. But um, yeah, I mean, I've had the same thing in the past where I felt the partner didn't do something as well. And it really, really frustrated me. But anyway, I think you've got to work those things out or get a cleaner. That's um, right. That is yeah. right. Yes. Yes. Maybe getting a cleaner is the resolution to a lot of marital problems. Exactly. Getting a cleaner. But I heard, and I don't know if it's true, I uh, heard that some guys do things badly on purpose so they don't get asked to do it again. That's right. That's right. I think I've probably been in one of those situations, surely. So, you know, especially if someone knows that I'm, I'm a bit of an inspector when it comes yeah. to the tidying up and cleaning. Absolutely. I'm not as bad as putting on a white gloves. I'm not a white glove inspector. No, but um, yeah. But then you're talking about, I suppose, um, division of labour and pressures around that. I suppose it brings me to a scenario that I actually had this week. What would you do? What would you do? And what would you do? I had a what would you do moment. Ooh, okay. Yeah, what's that? A WWY 
D moment. Yeah, WWYD. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I had one of those. And I thought I would share it with you, Tracy. Mm. And I thought I would um, get your opinion on it to see what would you do. So I'll set the scene. Um, so you have a friend yeah, who, where you followed her career mm. um, from when she's been um, a junior in her position. And she's now at her mid slash senior level. Mm-hmm. And she spent um, an, about 15 years working up to that particular level. It's a very yeah. competitive industry. Um, she's been great in terms of targets. So she's actually, in her approach, she's always had five-year plans. And they've mm-hmm. always been uh, put together around, you know, what her accomplishments are and her particular, you know, where she's in life in yeah. terms of, you know, saving for a wedding or saving for a house, getting on a property ladder, you know, getting a car, so that kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. uh, and now... Uh, she also planned for um, to start a family, and because she's at that, she, because she's at that mid level. Well, a few years ago she was at that mid level. Now she's at mid level, mm-hmm. and a few years ago she started preparing for well, family planning. And uh, recently she's had a baby, mm-hmm. and um, her company um, have given her uh, mat leave, and she worked right to the end of her mat leave out of choice. The idea is that she's going to be um, taking that mat leave, but um, she does want to go back and rejoin the workforce a lot earlier. The reason being is because she really enjoys her career. She's um, and also she's with a partner who um, is out of choice, wants to, is very passionate about being the carer. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is great. So, you know, obviously there's options for her. Mm-hmm. Now she's actually at a point whereby unexpectedly, as she's been on mat leave, she's been tapped on the shoulder by another organization and it's a great opportunity in fact it's an opportunity which she probably would have forecast would she be working up to maybe from in three years time but because of her hard work and reputation Mm. she's been tapped on the shoulder for this opportunity and um, so just before she was going into the meeting um, she didn't know whether or not to mention that she was on mat leave and now the situation is that um, because she's been essentially headhunted, she's concerned that um, the interviewers may already know from people who have given her name that she may already be on mat leave. And she didn't necessarily, um, yeah, she didn't know whether or not not to mention that. So, um, yeah, she asked me, what do I do, Avna? Do I mention that I'm on mat leave or not? So, Tracy, what advice would you give? All right, Okay. I don't think this one's massive. I don't think it really matters. I think it depends on what the interview is like or the discussion, the conversation goes like. I don't think it matters if she's on mat leave. Is she just gone on mat leave or? Yes. She's about two two to three months in. Of what, six months or? Yeah, so um, it's actually, yeah, six months. For her six mat months leave. mat That's leave. she's organised. Yeah, so... she's, she's just not, yeah, she's not completed of three months yet. Right. I wouldn't be too concerned about it. I would personally, I would tell them they've had some her. They're interested in her. So I don't think it's a big deal that she's on maternity leave. She's on leave. If they want her, then that won't matter. And it's about what kind of organization do you want to work for? Do you want to work for an organization that supports its workers, values its workers, and is flexible, you know, expects their workers to have kids and, you know, is flexible around parental leave and it's not discriminating against women because they have kids or are going to have kids or whatever I personally don't think that's a big deal they might already know anyway um, it's more or less whether she purposely keeps it from them avoids it 
then that could lead to kind of suspicions of mistrust that, that could affect the yeah, trust. That, and that's what she was concerned about. That's the tone yeah. that I got when she was asking. That was one of the major concerns. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, it depends on how the interview goes. Are they really focused on talking about the role and how she, what she could bring to the role? Mm. Or does it get into more around, you know, when, like she might ask them, or when would you want the role, me to start in the role? And then you kind of have to bring it up, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually responded and said, um, very similar to yourself, Tracy, in the sense that I think I was quite blunt and uh, responded to my friend. And by saying that whether or not you have one child or 20 children, whether or not you're on mat leave or not, should not make a difference in this meeting. It shouldn't even be a consideration in terms of whether or not you can do this job or if you're the right person for this job. Yeah. So, um, and I um, and my friend said to me that she and understandably, she said, Babna, they may already know. And if I don't say it first, then they might get like I said, Tracy, I'm, she was concerned that she might be seen as withholding information. Yeah. And I advised her around is to say that don't bring it up. If they bring it up, um, um, then obviously, you know, yeah. answer the question, but shut it down quite quickly because it's not relevant to the job. I said, yeah. however, even when sometimes because they know of you, we may might actually add it in the, um, like the intro conversation. You know, the, the introductions and the hello, how are you kind of thing. And even that, even in then, I advised my friend, I said, you know, don't put too much emphasis on it. And uh, to just remember why you're actually there and to focus on your skill set. So that's what I basically said. Um, but it was interesting because I, I saw this, actually, this, is, this information is from Seek, and right. uh, uh, which is a job, job searching platform here in Australia. And uh, Seek actually have some advice around this. And there are seven questions yes. which are considered or deemed unreasonable um, to ask at the interview. Okay. And so these are the types of questions. The first question is, are you in a same-sex relationship? Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting one because in some job applications I've uh, completed in the last year, there is a drop-down menu asking you about your sexuality. Oh, that's okay. That's not asking so, if you're in a same-sex relationship, but yeah, go on. A second one is how old are you? And again, there's been um, job applications where there's a drop down menu and it's tick the box. Is it the, the range? It's the range. It's like, which box are you? You know, so yeah. Is that a roundabout way of getting your range? Getting your yeah, range? I think it is. Well, I'm pers- I personally think it is, but it'd be interesting to see to hear from our listeners and mm. see, see what everyone thinks. Um, this is another one that appears as a drop down menu. What's your ethnic background? But now what I've been seeing is there's also an option of prefer not to answer. See, I'm like in two minds about this because, well, for the, the, where do I start? Firstly, I don't like the question because it never has my ethnic background. That's one thing. It'll say black, but I'm not black. It'll say white, I'm not white. I don't consider myself black because I'm because I'm biracial. I don't see I'm black like somebody who is black would identify do you know what I mean? So I have that whole uh, other box tick thing and that annoys me. But then the other thing is, well, if we're trying to be more equal, we need to kind of, you know, prior, you might want, if you're shortlisting and you've got people that, you know, really well qualified, but you want to focus on more diversity, diversity. in the workplace, mm. then that's a relevant question. So, is, yeah. yeah. And also what you mentioned about, you know, um, not fitting into a box, you know, I'm of Indian background, but I'm British and a lot of these drop down menus, which I've come across in the last six months. Yeah. 
I've not fitted into a box because it basically says Asian, South Asian. And I, I, I don't no. identify as Asian, South Asian. Yeah, and I wouldn't identify as African either. So that's it. And so that's why I've had to tick the other box. Yeah. It's, it's annoying, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. It's like, wow. So the other questions are, what religion are you? And that's also come up in a question. But again, they're now putting a lot of employees, a lot of companies are putting prefer not to answer. Um, this one, it relates to my friend's situation. Are you pregnant or planning to start a family? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's illegal to ask I, that question anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other one is, who do you vote for? I suppose that would, I haven't had that many, I think maybe I had that a few years ago and that was um, in relation to um, a government application. Okay. I just think some of them are really not relevant. Yeah. Like, and a lot, religion, yeah. for example, there's no particular problems around discriminating against, I guess there could be discrimination against religion, but if you don't ask for religion, then you can't discriminate on it. Yeah. And it's not as if a particular religion, uh, a particular religion is going to have the advantage of a specific skill set. No, I guess there's the whole thing is people discriminating against Muslims, but then don't ask people's religions and it won't happen. That's it, exactly. And then um, the last one is, do you have a physical or mental disability? Now, I understand, I haven't been asked about the mental disability, but it's very, uh, it is actually quite common to be asked about the physical ability. The reason being is because the company are wanting to make uh, adequate arrangements. Yeah. When it comes to interview and I think that's where that comes from but it's interesting that the, those seven questions are what seek determine as uh, or deem as unnecessary I guess this is to ask in an interview but these are asking pre-interview pre-interview yeah yeah um, so it's interesting and it's really it's not that straightforward it's not black and white because you've got the whole you know more diverse hiring to consider because you could potentially exclude loads of people based on their ethnicity, which, you know, from interview. So you could be supporting the more diversity or you can be, you know, not supporting it. So I really, I don't know, it's a tricky one. I think it's important to have some of those things, but not all of them. Like, yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. So, yeah. yeah. Religion, like why, who cares? Do you know what I would like? I would like people to select people on interview without names or gender. That would be ideal. Without really names or gender. You just turn yes. up you turn up to the interview and then that's yeah. when they know your name. And yes. obviously your gender if it's obvious. That would be amazing because I know that there's lots of, I've had lots of situations there where because of my name, um, there's been preconceptions about who I am. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's improved recently, but um, 20 years ago here in Australia, you know, it was quite blatant. You know, they, they blatantly shared that, oh, I didn't expect you to sound like this. I didn't expect you to look like this. So, um, well, it's the same. Like, it's there's evidence, you know, they did the research. Google did it. A few other people have done it where they say the CVs, they got the, you know, the same person and put one name in English and one was like their Asian name. And the same. CV and the people with the English sounding names got the interviews. You know, that's interesting because I actually did my own kind of little experiment about seven years ago. I was actually struggling um, to get interviews. And I changed my name 
to a more Western name. What did you change it to? And I basically, I actually got, uh, I got two more interviews when expected. I applied for the same job, but under a different name. And I got a phone call back. No. Yeah. Yeah. What was your name? Oh, this is hilarious. What was the name? So, uh, gosh, it was, so so, uh, I changed my name to Mia, M-I-A. And I think, and then the surname I chose Farmer. The reason I chose like farmer once away, yeah, yeah, but not obviously not in that context. Farmer, F A R M. Uh, the reason why I chose farmer is because my birth uh, surname is Patel, and Patel in Gujarati dialect translates to landowner or farmer. Okay, and so, uh, and so that's why I chose farmer, right. Mia Farmer. Yeah. As a literally, I just, I put it down, but I literally just change it just because I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I was going through a patch where I just wasn't getting callbacks. And I thought, let's just try this. And I did. And I I got two callbacks from the same job I I had applied to. I wonder what would happen if you did that now. I know. Hmm. Mm. Well, I'm not necessarily struggling for callbacks at the moment. So you You um, never know. Watch this space. Watch this space. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting That's, one. It is an interesting one. Yeah, thanks for that one. That's right. Thanks for that one. That yeah, really, I really enjoyed turning the what would you do on its head. That was a good spin. Yeah. And if you've got any more for me, bring them on. I'll, I'll, I'll do. I'll, don't mind. But yeah, I just want to re-emphasize that asking someone they're pregnant or planning to have children in an interview is illegal in Australia. So I don't know about everywhere else. But I actually have a situation. I've talked about it before, so very briefly mention it, where I hired someone who told me when they were hired that they were pregnant. Okay. Yeah, and that was very tricky for me because we were actually really desperate to find someone mm-hmm. um, to uh, put on some projects. Like we had a really serious resourcing problem and it taken so long. We had these candidates... You know, we'd found someone that we thought was the best candidate. We offered them the role and the project, you know, we're trying to get, we want to get them on, get trained to get them this project. And they came in and told me, then they told me they were pregnant. That was really, I was kind of annoyed about that because they knew they were pregnant when they interviewed. Yeah. Okay. But at the same time, I would never have been able to ask that. What I probably ask, what I would say to ask in interviews for men and women is if, and this is what you, People do ask, are you planning to take an extended leave? Because I've been asked that in interviews. You know, if I've got like a month off, if I'm planning to go traveling, I've got holidays, but yes, that kind of thing. And so I've been asked that in interviews. So I think that's a reasonable question. Yeah, it's a great way. Now, it's, it's the advice I gave to my friend on a lot of things, really. I said, it's about how you frame situation and I said to her in your situation you know if you're concerned about um, your work-life balance and that you want to spend more time um, with your child then frame it from a sense that talk to them about their values talk to them about what you've heard about and there will be expectations and what expectations they will have of you so mm-hmm. it's the way you frame it um, mm-hmm. where, which you can get around your own personal situation but you see it's also interesting what you should just shared with Tracy about disclosing the pregnancy or child planning after you've received a job and I suppose I've had a situation again in kind of like a flip side situation where I've been hired for a job however the hiring manager has um, then disclosed that she's pregnant Mm -hmm. and that I will be looking after 
part of her role, which I wasn't expecting. So there's also a flip side to that. That must be rare, but that is an interesting mm. scenario. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, lots of food for thought there. Well, very interesting conversation. Thank you. Lovely talking to you, as usual. Yes, well, I look forward to the next time we catch up. Yeah, until the next time. All right, see you. Have a great week. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. Feel free to email us stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!